Go ahead and grab a seat, everybody. Welcome, everybody here to Marin Covenant Church. Welcome online. Always good to have you guys with us. Um, it's been so fun with, uh, with COVID. The, one of the benefits is just the nonstop television I've gotten to watch. I don't know, does that happen to you? Just like everything. Like, there is nothing on a streaming service I think I've seen at this point. And, uh, and what's fun, what I realized is, because I share all my streaming accounts with my kids, I get to see what they watch, right? And you're like, oh, interesting. So I go into Netflix, I'm excited to see what's on there, and all of a sudden there's like anime after anime because my son's watching, you know, some cartoon that I don't understand, or my daughter's having another round of Gilmore Girls. I'm like, look at Gilmore Girls making a comeback. Um, but recently, um, there was a movie that came up that, my, that must have been my son watching, and I ended up asking him about it, um, this movie, Into the Wild. I don't know if you've ever read the book or, or seen the movie, and uh, it's interesting because I'm like, no, was that you watching Into the Wild? He's like, oh. I love it. It's such a good movie. And I found this thing rise up in me because I don't really like Into the Wild. I don't really like this guy. This guy, Chris, if, you, if you're familiar with the story, Chris, he grows up, right, in a middle-class home, and he went to a college, and he basically, he's so over having his parents paid for, him for everything in his life, and uh, he was tired of his parents' hypocrisy and just how, you know, what normies they were, and he wanted to go and explore the world. He wanted to have this adventure. He's been, you know, reading philosophy in English, and he wanted to go on this adventure, and he does, right? He spends two years traveling the United States and ending up in Alaska. And my son is like, that is my dream. I'm like, yeah, it's so awesome for you to just take all of my money and resources and then go and travel the world. And, 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 but it's true. He wants to explore and be an adventurer. And because God wired me as super conscientious, right? I'm like, no, let's, let's make a movie about the, just a normal person who has a job and pays taxes and picks up the hitchhiker and, and gives them food. Like, where does all that food come from? Where does all the, the cars come from? Like, us normies, we're, you know, we're doing that. But there's no movies about us normies. You know, there's only movies about the adventurer. And, um, and I, I find this thing that happens in me, and maybe it happens in you too, but we either want everyone to be like us, and so there, there's this envy that, 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 that drives up, right? When I see these adventurers who just go and take advantage of, of us normies, something rises up and I just have envy. I'm like, why are they the heroes of our society and culture? And I just, I get all angry, right? So envy is one of those emotions. But the other one is sometimes if, if you have like a low self-esteem or you're struggling with who you are, you see all these other people doing great things and you end up just looking at other people adoringly and like, gosh, they are so awesome. Look what they can do. These are these incredible people and I'm nothing. And in, in an unhealthy moment, right, we're either stuck between being really upset and angry towards people or we belittle ourselves to the point because we're just so enthralled with everybody else and what they can do and what we can't do. And the reason why I bring this up is because this passage that we're going to take a look at this morning in John chapter 12 is just such a picture of the human experience. It's the picture of Jesus and his disciples and his friends, and they're having a meal, and there's an interaction, and you can just see, and you're going to be able to see how people, in the way that we interact with each other, we bring our best to the table. If we're not careful, our shadow side rises up, and we can't even embrace what God is doing because we get so messed up because of all that's happening inside of us. And so this morning, really what I want to talk about is I want to recognize this idea that we are called to become all that God has made us to be. Like we have been uniquely crafted by God to be these incredible people with great gifts, with great talents, with great temperaments, all unique, just like we are unique. We've all been given those gifts in a very unique way. But God actually wants to leverage those for his kingdom to be used by him and for him. And when we do that, oh, it just warms 
God's heart. So that's what we're going to take a look at this morning. So if you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 12. And what's so fun about the Bible is we have these numbers, and so we know exactly what happened before and after. So what, what chapter was before chapter 12? 11. Gosh, look at you guys are Bible scholars. Exactly. And, uh, and if you were here last week, um, do you remember Jeff preached a great sermon on uh, the main character, besides Jesus, of course, of, in John chapter 11. Do you remember who that was? Lazarus, right. So Jesus, right, uh, he goes to Bethany and there's this family, Mary, which we've heard about before, Mary, Mary and Martha, they're these sisters. There's another great story about where Martha is in the kitchen making all the stuff great and Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet and, and they have that encounter. That's the same Mary and Martha and Lazarus and, they, and Jesus goes to Lazarus. He raises him uh, from the dead. What's interesting is Mary and Martha, again, in their own unique temperaments, interact with Jesus in totally different ways as Jesus is coming to the tomb of Lazarus. And if you, uh, if you were not here last week, I, you have to listen to last week's sermon. I thought Jeff not only told such a great story, but the way in which we're called to wait on Christ and the, the, the process of spiritual formation in our waiting, it was just a home run. And again, that's what we're going to take a look at in, in this chapter, John chapter 12. We're going to take a look at these people and their interactions with each other and their interactions with Jesus and basically wrestle with what sort of spiritual formation God may have for us. So here we are, John chapter 12. So six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, in case you weren't paying attention, just, you know, the three words before. Okay, so that's where we are. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. And of course, Martha, right, she's the one serving. Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And then there's Mary. And Mary takes out a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of her perfume. And it's written in such a beautiful way. I mean, you can almost kind of imagine just how beautiful that is, how poetic it is, um, you know, with her long hair and the perfume and the smells and the fragrance. It's just a beautiful sentence. But if you actually think about it, it's super awkward. Right? Imagine you're at a dinner party, and I mean, and this woman comes, and in our context, it's, it's so weird, but in this context, even more so, to, for a, a woman to unveil her hair, to put her hair down, to take this perfume and wash feet, right? These guys are all in sandals. Washing feet is the lowliest of things. And here, Mary, in this super tender-hearted moment of worship, in pure, just expressive worship, blesses Jesus in this really over-the-top extravagant way. And you can just imagine everybody going, whoa, what in the world's going on? Well, everybody does that. But of course, we're going to pick on Judas because he betrayed Jesus. So once you betray Jesus, you get to be picked on for everything. And this is what it says. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages, right? I mean, you could just see that. I mean, what an extravagant and awkward gift, but what an expensive gift. These weren't wealthy people. And just think, if, if you're someone whose your heart is for the poor, your heart is for foster care, and you're like, you're wasting money on the sound system. What are you doing? That money could be used for something else, right? Judas was like, coming after it. It was worth a year's wages. Well, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was in the money. Well, I love this interaction with Jesus, and I love this whole story, because you have these three characters. You have Martha, you have Mary, you have Judas, who are all so different. And the way that they engage 
Jesus, the way they engage one another is so different. And it gives me such hope and peace because we are so different. The way in which we engage one another, the way in which we get engage Jesus is totally different because we are uniquely crafted by God. And so the deal is that we bring all of who we are to the table. When we show up in an interaction with one another, when we show up with an interaction at church, when we worship Christ, when whatever we're doing, we bring all of who we are. We like to bring the best version of ourselves when we pretend we bring this one small slice of who we are to the table, but we actually bring all of who we are. And I don't know if you're familiar with this. This is kind of a weird little shape, but this is the Enneagram. And uh, there's all sorts of personality profiles. What I love is we live in a time when so many people have gone before us to help us understand who we are, how we're wired, what's good and what's bad. And there's like Myers-Briggs and colors and animals and, you know, all sorts of different ways. But the Enneagram is one of my favorites. It's super complex. But the reason why I love it is because the Enneagram talks about what motivates us. It doesn't say, oh, I'm intuitive or I'm shy. No, it's, it's what motivates us. And because we're all motivated by different things, there's parts of our personality that are overdeveloped and parts of our personality that's underdeveloped. And what I love about the Enneagram is it actually compels you to look at your shadow side. Because every single one of us have a part of us that usually it's a self-understanding of all the best things we bring to the table. And most of us aren't that good at reflecting on what are some of the worst things that we bring to the table. And if we're going to be the people that God wants us to be, we have to recognize we bring all of that to the table, good and the bad and the ugly. And God actually wants all of that to be brought before him, to be molded and shaped, refined, redeemed, and empowered and used for him. And so this morning, we're going to look at Mary and Martha and Judas, because I think they're three kind of archetypes of, of Christians in general, like most Christians, I mean, there's a wide variety of Christians, which we'll see later, but most Christians, at least in our context, kind of fit in these three little bubbles. And Mary, Martha, and Judas is kind of a bad example. So if, you're, if you fit in this bubble, I'm going to try to redeem this in a second. But this is what I want to talk about. Mary, who is the caregiver, right? She's the servant. And Martha, she's, I mean, sorry, that's Martha. Mary is the enthusiast, right? And she's the worshiper, and she's this extravagant person. And Judas, he's an activist. He wants to get things done. So those are the three different people um, that I want to look at. And if you think of like a Martha, you know, maybe in the Enneagram, she's like the Enneagram 2 or she's a caregiver. Um, there's this great book I'm going to talk about in a minute called Sacred Pathways. And they label that person the caregiver, right? And they're the people who they're wired. They love God. And the way that they love God is by serving other people. Like, I'm so selfish. I'm not, I don't even understand this person. But this person genuinely, like, providing a beautiful space, creating a beautiful environment, bringing food, you know, to one of the foster moms, doing that behind the scenes thing that nobody sees, like fills them. It's a way of worship for them. It's incredible. God wired people to bless him, to love him, to love others with that unique temperament. And Mary, Mary, she's different. And we've seen her to be different. She's an enthusiast, maybe like a four on the Enneagram, right? She's just heart forward. She's just like sees her own world. She's all in the feels all the time. Whatever she's feeling, she is all there. And at her best, right, gosh, she just worships Jesus. She doesn't care what anyone around her is doing. She just shows up in the moment and is going to give Jesus all of her heart. She doesn't care who sees, how awkward it is, how much money she's spending. She's just going to extravagantly worship Jesus. There's people wired like that who are just so heart forward. They're always experiencing joy or melancholy. They're just always in their fields and at their best when it's pointed towards God. It is such a beautiful thing. And then Judas, which this is his shadow side. But I think the, the activist part of Judas, right? 
Like he wanted that money to go to the poor. He wanted there to be some sort of rebuke against the empire and the oppression of the Romans, right? And we have activists among us in the church, and the church needs activists. If not, we just sit around singing kumbaya and making cookies for each other. But the activist is the one that says, no, we're the hands and feet of Christ. It is on us to be the ones to make sure we are actually doing the things of Christ, caring for the under-resourced and the underserved, right? I love it, you know, that... The foster the city is a perfect, the people who lead that, right? they're activists. They're the people who are like, this is something's going to get done and we're the ones that are doing it. We are doing this thing. And what's interesting is by doing that, by actually enjoying a little bit of the confrontation and enjoying the challenge of it is a way that they worship Jesus. And it's helpful for us to realize that we are wired so differently because if you're someone who just is so heart forward, you're like, how is this person who's just like working their butt off to, to, to challenge the system like the same thing has actually happened, even though it looks so different. And so we want to be people who recognize what is the unique way that God has crafted us and wired us. And then we want to maximize those things and do that more and more to build the body of Christ and encourage one another. But because we're broken human beings, because we're sinful people and rebellious, we're not all the best parts of our personality. Each one of those personalities also has a shadow side. And we actually need to be aware of our shadow side too, because if we're not, then we're just going to steamroll people. We're going to crush people. We're actually going to hinder what God longs to do in the body of Christ. And because no one likes the shadow side, it feels a little dangerous. I wrote these down. These are um, taken from this book, Sacred Pathways, which I'll, I'll go over more in a second. But the shadow side is a part of us that we need to understand we need to be aware of because if, and we need to allow God to actually mold us and shape us and heal us so we can truly be all that he is. So the caregiver, the servant, the person who's just going to selflessly give all themselves to others and to the body of Christ, sometimes these people can lose their own identity while caring for others. And the actual shadow side of that is self-righteousness. Look at all that I've done for people. And that little root of bitterness and can cause self-righteousness and tear at their hearts. So sometimes even caregiving can be a disease. And it's actually an act of taking. It's an act of deception, loving others so that they will love us or need us in return. Right? It's like this really perilous you know, line that we're on. And if you're a caregiver, you want to be able to give all that you have for Christ, but you want to be reflective and go, oh, where are my motives? How am I doing those things? So God can continue to refine us. The enthusiast is, has a different set of shadow sides, right? Sometimes they make the experience everything. And then the shadow side of that can be entitlement. They're so caught up in their feelings, they had no idea that Martha just made this incredible meal. Like someone had to bring all that food. Someone had to do all the great music. Someone had to create the environment. All that stuff happened so that the enthusiast can be in that moment. And if enthusiast isn't aware, then they become entitled, thinking that's just how it is. They're just supposed to walk around in these experiences. And here's a, here's a warning for the enthusiast. It says, just because we feel good during a time of worship that alone doesn't mean that we've offered up our will in an appropriate matter. And conversely, just because we feel down or flat, that doesn't mean that we aren't effectively worshiping God either. And so it's so great to be on your feels, but there's a shadow side that we need to be aware of as well. And then here's the activist, and you'll see this is kind of what happens with Judas. The activist can get frustrated at the slow pace, at the slow pace of progress and is tempted to take matters into their own hands. The shadow side of this is anger and can lead to bullying. This quote says this, the shadow side of this temperament shows itself in tactlessness, running roughshod over others, and not waiting for God or seeking discernment. And you see, that's exactly what happens with Judas. He sees Mary's version of worship, and there's part of him, right, that he's like, 
gosh, that money could go towards the poor. And, and, and John, he just lays into Jesus. I mean, John gives the least, um, I don't even know the right, right way. He just gives zero benefit of the doubt. Judas is just an evil person all the way through. The other gospel writers give a little bit of a warmer nod to Judas. Um, but theologians and scholars overall of history just recognize like all of us, we are very complex people. And Judas himself was a very complex person. And one of the, the scholars that I read this week, he painted this incredible picture of Judas, which just kind of put him in a different light, which that Judas, I mean, was also an activist. He wanted for Jesus to come, for the kingdom of God to be made manifest on earth. But for him, that mean, meant that he needed to push back on the Romans, push back on empire. And gosh, how many activists, right, want to push back on the overreachings of, of powerful people and the powerful government? And that's Judas. He wanted that to happen. And Jesus, as he got more and more closer to Jesus and closer to his teachings, Jesus wasn't doing the things that Judas wanted. And ultimately, after the, the resurrection of Lazarus, Judas some scholars think that that's it. Judas is like, okay, I'm going to betray Jesus because I want the world to see what Jesus can do. And if Jesus is betrayed, if Jesus' back is against the wall, he will bring the army of angels and they will come down and they will crush the Roman Empire once and for all. And then Jesus will be the Messiah. And then Judas, you know, he'll be on the inner circle of that kingdom. And then when Jesus was sentenced to death, right, he freaks out and he goes and he throws in the, the, the 30 um, pieces of silver. Now, I don't know, all, I mean, we're complex people. We, there are people kind of imagining and, and filling in the story, but you could see that happening for Judas as well. And so the, the, the bottom line is that we just need to recognize that we are very complex people and that the body of Christ actually needs all of us to function together. We don't just need each of us individually anatomized people. We need to all be unified and working together. Now, one of my, one of, oh, and so if that is something, you know, if you've tried to figure out and wrestle with who you are as a person, how do you connect with God? If you ever heard that book, The Five Love Languages, if you've ever tried to be in a relationship, that's really helpful because you're like, what? They're not wired like me? And you have these different ways in which you engage each other. Well, this book, Sacred Pathways, does just that except towards God. We're made in the image of God, so it makes sense that the way in which we encounter God is going to be just as unique as the way that we are. And so instead of saying, hey, there's only caregivers and enthusiasts and activists, this author actually says that there's nine different ways, nine ways in which we encounter Christ, which is, makes a lot of sense because we all encounter him differently. We can have both grace for each other and we can be encouraged by one another as well. So these are the nine. The naturalists, they're the people who love God by being outdoors. The sensates, loving God with the senses. Traditionalists, loving God through ritual and symbol. The ascetics, loving God in solitude and simplicity. The activists, loving God through confrontation and evangelism. Caregivers, loving by serving and helping others. Enthusiasts, loving God with excitement and joy. Contemplatives, loving God through introspection and adoration. And intellectuals, loving God with the mind. And one of the things I just so love about our church and love being a part of this church is that we, we work really hard to make space for the wide variety of temperaments that people have spiritually. I mean, the ascetics, those guys kind of struggle with being here. I get that. But everybody else, we're trying to lace, make slices to go, yes, everyone has a different way in which they counter Christ. And if we can actually leverage each other, if we can be connected to each other, and if we can take the benefit of each other, then we get to be this healthy body of Christ that can do all these things for the kingdom of God. And it reminds me of, of this, this man whose name is um, Ehud, oh man, now I'm, 
Oh, my head. Eud Kampochi, Kampachi, I don't know. I jacked his name. I've been trying to, Shelly was making fun of me because all week I was trying to pronounce his name, but I messed it up. But he is a world record marathon runner. And him and I are very similar. I mean, I ran a marathon um, this, um, this fall and we're like the same person. I mean, we both ran 26.2 miles. It's incredible. He did it in two hours and one, one minute. That's the world record. I did it in almost five. That's kind of embarrassing this last time around. But this last, but he did it. He won the gold medal twice. He is this incredible marathon runner. And what's so incredible is he is awesome. And we look at him, we go, you are awesome. But we're not going, gosh, your legs are awesome. Your heart is awesome. Your lungs are awesome. Your toes are awesome. No, all of his body is scientifically, systematically beat into submission and owning, working together so that he can run 26.2 miles in two hours and one minute. That is so fast for so long because his whole body is working together. I mean, his large intestine has to be just as united as his heart and as his calves and his toes. All those muscles, all those organs have to be working together. His brain has to be so focused for all those things to come together. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there's this whole chapter, which is basically an encouragement to the church to remind us that we are the body of Christ. Jesus is the head. Right? Eud Kampochi, he gets the glory. Jesus gets the glory. We are just the muscles, the hands, the feet, the eyes, the organs. We are all the different parts of the body. And together, we work together to give glory to Jesus that, for that Jesus can accomplish his good work. So that's what we want to do. We want to figure out how to be a healthy body. And the way we're a healthy body is by each of us owning our part, recognizing who we are, recognizing the unique gifts that God has made us, and the shadow side that God needs to redeem and then to be activated for his service, for his kingdom. That's one part. Okay, put that right here. I'm gonna take a small little detour. We're gonna come over here. Can, if you've been a parent, can you agree with me that parenting is hard? Only one person, I know. Well, I'm gonna tell you. For me, for some reason, it's hard. When I was ready to have a parent, be a parent, I was like, this is gonna be the cake ever. I've seen all the family movies and the pictures. How, how hard is it to get your kids to dress all the same and to smile for a family photo? This is gonna be a piece of cake. But if you've been a parent for any amount of time, you know, gosh, every season just seems to be brutal. First, you don't sleep. And then like, every season is just always hard. Then you gotta teach them math and potty training. For us, that was around the same age, right? <laughs> super, super hard. And then teenagers, it's a whole different ball game. Well, the way that you know that parenting is hard is these little moments that kind of put all of the feelings of parenting into one clear moment that make it excruciating. And that is taking your family on vacation. Once you take your kids on your vacation, then you know, yes, this is actually torture and awful. So if you, and Disneyland, I think, is the perfect example. Some of you are Disney people, God bless you. I took my kids to Disneyland once and I will never do it again. And here's why it's a challenge for me as the dad, and this is you know, my, my role in our family, but it's, it's my job to figure out how we're going to pay for it. It's my job to figure out how we're going to fly there, what hotels we're going to stay at, what food we're going to eat, how we're going to get to there to, temper, to, to figure out, to get through lines, fast pass. What in the world is that? If you're like a once a lifetime person, that's like a total mystery. You're watching all these people go cut you in line. It's brutal. And then on top of that, right, you have your kids who are just whiny and upset 
all the time. And they're like, I want to go to Magic Mountain. Ah, I'm hungry. Ah, like every single thing like is not perfect. And you're like, there's 10,000 people. You don't even know how to get there, right? And everyone is like, I'm upset. And they're upset because they're not getting what they want. And then I'm like getting upset because they're just entitled. They have no idea how expensive this was, how much stressed it is a parent. I'm trying to think about what's next. They're hungry. And I'm thinking of the lines of all the places. Like I, I can't even enjoy the moment. It is brutal. See, that's my garbage, Okay. But I think in general, parenting is really hard, but it's actually harder and, and, than I expected. And it's harder in a different way than I expected too. Because I, of course, thought not sleeping was going to be hard. I thought, oh, of course, them in their entitlement, that's going to be hard. But you know what is actually really hard? Is that they hurt your feelings. I did not expect that. You know, having a four-year-old being like, eh, like you're like, you're annoying. Having a 12-year-old do that, you're like, that's one thing. Having a 17-year-old not want to talk to you take what you want, walk away, shun you, leave you alone, ditch you with their, like over and over, day in and day out. I'm like, oh, that hurts my feelings. And I had no idea how much that was going to be, how difficult that was going to be. And what's interesting, and what kids don't understand is as parents, we actually want to give our kids all of these good gifts. We want to take them on vacation. We want to pay for them. We want to do these things for them over and over and over again. Yes, we want to build memories, and yes, we want to grow our social media. Like Those are important things as well. But at the end of the day, what we really want is we just simply want to be in relationship with them. We actually genuinely love our kids. We're, we're fascinated by them. We're trying to figure out the kind of people they're going to be, and we love them. And like for our kids in teenage land, you know, maybe once every four months, we get this little slice of humanity out of them. We're like, oh, this is awesome. And we just soak it up. And we're like, this is so great ever. It warms my heart. Right? It makes my heart giant and huge and explode. Now, the reason why I tell you this and I, I bring that up is because as I've been studying this passage of Scripture, and if we're made in the image of God, and if one of the images of God is that he's our, our parent and we are these kids, now I get in my mind, right? Yep, God can be angry. Uh, we hurt God's feelings. Uh, when we sin, we, you know, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Um, he's jealous. Like we, like we have all those emotions attracted around God. But could we actually get our head around that God actually is soft-hearted towards us? That he loves us in a way that he just wants to be with us and hear from us and to watch us thrive and to grow and to be in relationship with him. And not just be snotty, entitled kids, take, 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 but to actually be in relationship with him. And the way that we live, can we live in such a way that it actually blesses him? Like it's, it's, it's in a, once in a blue moon, but every now and then, right? My parents, my kids will do something selfless for Katie and I. They'll just like do something nice to us. And we're like, whoa, this is so great. You see me as your parent. You said, thank you for me as a parent. You want to know something about me and my life that was without trying to get something in return. It's like, like all of a sudden our hearts are connected in a whole different way, right? And so here's the question. Do you think that our offerings can actually minister to Jesus? Do you think the way that we live, the things that we do for him, can they actually minister to Jesus? Can they actually like build God's heart in a warm way? And the reason why I, I came to this point, because at the end of this weird little encounter between Martha and Mary and Judas and Mary worshiping Jesus in this really extravagant way, this is Jesus' response. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. For you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now, this is not a passage that was taken out of context. See, we don't have to care about the poor. We don't have to care about foster kids. We just need to worship Jesus. That is not what he's saying at all. But Jesus has this really, I think, intimate and heartfelt 
response, which is this act of worship is actually preparing me for my burial. Now, Mary didn't know, the disciples didn't know, but if you, when you read your scriptures, the very next verse is Palm Sunday. It's moving back into Jerusalem and heading straight for the cross. And Jesus knew that his life was about to be over, that he was about to be crucified for the sins of the world. He was heading in that direction. And Jesus, who was fully God and like, yes, ready to do that, he was also fully human. And Jesus, in all these other interactions throughout scripture, he's always putting away worship. He's always sending people away. Don't, don't tell people this. Don't tell people this. Keep people away. I just want to serve. I want to serve. But here you get this moment of humanity where Jesus is about to encounter the most brutal and um, the most brutal trial of his entire life for all of eternity, right? And he just absorbs this worship from Mary. He just takes it. Just takes it. And Jesus, who is fully God and fully human, I just wonder, is God's heart really that soft? Can we actually minister to God? Can we actually bless God in a way that builds and impacts the squishy part of God? Maybe he could. And think about how differently our, our, the way we approach Jesus would be, the way that we serve Jesus, the way that we encounter him is if we really understood that the way that we live actually can minister to God, can actually bless the heart of God. So before I wrap things up, there's just two quick things I want to say. One is this, that Jesus, we get that Jesus deserves, but he's also blessed by our offerings. You know, someone who, um, though I'm conscientious, I love the Old Testament, I, you know, I grew up being a Calvinist and, oh, God being almighty and authority and the holy fire and he's the king of kings and lord of lords. I'm like, yes, I love that. And to serve him with all of my being, gosh, I will gladly, right, be a cupbearer for him. I'll be at his gates um, be by myself. Like, I will do, I will be a servant for him all day. I get that through and through and through and through. But also, can our offerings bless God? Can the way that we live warm God's heart. Because God, like our parents, like us, like right when we just send our kids to Disneyland and do all these things, the whole point is not just to make memories. The whole point was actually to build our hearts and be in relationship and sit around a table and laugh and share memories. And if that ever happens, I've heard about people and their families where that does happen. I'm like, oh, how great is that? And wouldn't that make sense that God in the same way just longs for his people to gather around and to worship him and to love him, and to give him affection and adoration as well. And so lastly, I just want to encourage us that we would live in a way that does just that, that we would live in a way that just makes Jesus proud. You see, every single one of us have been uniquely crafted, we've been uniquely given unique gifts and talents and passions. We uniquely connect with Christ in different ways. We care about things in different ways. We all have different emotional temperaments and bandwidths. We're all made so differently. And instead of being envious because people and, and having envy uh, for, for the things that we don't have or being bitter and upset because people are not more like us, what if we were just fascinated with one another, encourage each other to be the most whole versions of ourselves, to really wrestle with and kill the shadow side of us so that we can be a more uh, healthy contributor to the body of Christ and then live in a way that blesses him. I love this picture. This is uh, Mr. Incredible. And if you've ever seen that movie, right? He's a superhero. I mean, he's a superhero. He can do anything. He's Mr. Incredible. And yet he took his superpower and he stuffed it deep inside and he did, took this desk job and he's just living this tiny shadow of an existence. 
And our world has said, hey, don't just be the shadow existence. Figure out who you are. Do, figure out exactly who you are and go on this path of self-fulfillment, which is super important and actually will change a lot about who you are. But in the church, we're not saying, hey, just be on this path of self-fulfillment. We're saying be on this path to figure out exactly who you are in Christ. Because true self-fulfillment is understanding who you are in the body of Christ. Being the best finger ever is actually kind of silly, right? To being the best contributor to the body of Christ so that the kingdom of God can make itself on earth as it is in heaven. And us going to be co-laborers and partners with Christ, that is what is incredible. And so I'm going to invite the band up. I'm gonna, why don't you stand with me? Let me pray for us and over us as we spend time in worship and reflecting on the ways that God wants to heal us and empower us and to use our uniqueness both for the benefit of our church, but mostly for the body of Christ so that his will might be done. Heavenly Father and our gracious God, we are so thankful that you're long-suffering and patient and generous and kind and just ooze love over us, over us, over us all the time. I just pray that that would give us courage to mature up, to, in this context and posture of receiving your love, that you would have your way with us. That you'd help us figure out the very unique ways in which you've molded us and shaped us and crafted us. And that we would put that to use for your kingdom, but we'd also put it to use in a way that would just bless you, that would bless your heart, that would make you so proud, that would make you smile from ear to ear to see your kids living their best life, partnering with Jesus, doing the work of God. So Lord, we pray that you'd have your way in us and through us, continue to mold and shape us. And as we stumble along, may we have grace for each other the way that you have grace for us. For everything we have, we long to give you glory. Amen and amen. Now let's continue as we reflect to offer our love and affection back towards Christ.